You are listening to community-supported radio, KVMR-FM, Nevada City, KCPC, Camino. Today is Wednesday, November 25th. I'm Charlotte Peterson, and it's time for the KVMR Evening News. For their support, we'd like to thank William Stationery, a family-owned, full-service office supply store and delivery service, also retailing janitorial supplies and office furniture, located at 112 West Main Street, downtown Grass Valley, since 1949, williamsallvalue.com. And Harmony Books of Nevada City, locally owned for over 25 years, next to the Chamber of Commerce at 130 Main Street, open Monday through Saturday, 10 to 5.30, Sundays, 11 to 4. Harmony Books carries thousands of books, including local authors. Following NPR headlines and regional weather, Paul Emery talks with Gary Zimmerman about economic developments in the last two weeks. Black people are more hesitant about getting a vaccine. A leading nurse wants to change that, NPR reports. Closing out today's newscast, we have Jim Hightower with a commentary. At 6.30, we bring you The Sages Among Us, and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. But first, NPR headlines and regional weather. Live from NPR News, I'm Dale Willman. President Trump is granting a full pardon to his first national security advisor, Michael Flynn. As NPR's Windsor Johnston reports, Flynn had pleaded guilty to lying to the FBI about his contacts with Russia, but then reversed course and accused the government of trying to frame him. In a tweet, President Trump congratulated Flynn and his family and said it's with great honor to grant him a full pardon. Flynn pleaded guilty twice to lying to the FBI about his conversations with Russia's ambassador. He was the only member of the Trump administration to be charged as a part of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election. That's NPR's Windsor Johnston. Expectations are building among border activists now that President-elect Joe Biden has nominated Alejandro Mayorkas, a veteran of the Obama administration, to be his new Secretary of Homeland Security. As NPR's John Burnett reports, immigrant advocates are anxious for an about-face on Trump's harsh immigration policies. The government has earmarked a billion dollars to start building the border wall along 71 miles of the Rio Grande in the Laredo, Texas area. This week, a citizens group there called on Alejandro Mayorkas if he is confirmed to take immediate action. Tricia Cortez is with the local No Border Wall coalition. We don't expect and we don't want this to become the Biden wall. So uh, what we're asking for is a moratorium on construction and condemnation of land. Candidate Biden vowed that if elected, he would not allow another foot of the border barrier to go up. Immigration hawks have warned he will usher in chaos at the border if he loosens Trump's policies. John Burnett, NPR News. In what he labeled as a Thanksgiving address to the nation, President-elect Biden today urged Americans to hang on and not surrender to the fatigue of fighting the coronavirus. Rather, he asked that Americans wear masks, stay distanced, and help to reduce the recent spike in virus cases across the U.S. It's been four months since the federal government announced its $2 billion deal with Pfizer for 100 million doses of its coronavirus vaccine. Now that contract is finally public. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sidney Lupkin reports on the fine prints. 
Pfizer has distanced itself from Operation Warp Speed, the Trump administration's expensive push to have a coronavirus vaccine ready in record time. It's true Pfizer didn't get a research and development deal back in the spring, but its vaccine supply contract with Operation Warp Speed is one of the largest to date. That contract limits government rights to intellectual property found in typical government contracts, and that worries some intellectual property and drug policy experts. The Department of Health and Human Services says Operation Warp Speed negotiated the contracts aggressively and balanced many factors. Sydney Lepkin, NPR News. The Dow Jones Industrial Average on Wall Street closed down 173 points today. The Nasdaq closed up. This is NPR. The Supreme Court says it will continue to hear arguments by telephone through at least January. The precautions are being taken because of the pandemic. The announcement extends telephone arguments by another month. The last time the justices met in person to hear arguments was in February of this year. The soccer world is mourning the death of one of its legendary players, Diego Maradona. He died Wednesday of a heart attack. He was 60 years old. NPR's Tom Goldman reports that Maradona is being remembered as a brilliant athlete with a troubled personal life. After a childhood in the slums of Buenos Aires, Diego Maradona became an Argentine hero and global soccer star. The pinnacle of stardom came at the 1986 World Cup. In a match against England, Maradona scored on an illegal handball that wasn't called and that he famously dubbed the Hand of God. He followed that with what Telemundo sports soccer announcer Andres Cantor calls artistry, a 70-yard run through the defense that ended with the winning goal. He changed directions and changed speeds on the play, always with the ball glued to his left foot. His soccer legacy is clouded by struggles with drug and alcohol addiction. Still, Contour says Diego Maradona's death is a sad day for the beautiful game. Tom Goldman, NPR News. Pilots with Delta Airlines have agreed to de facto pay cuts in exchange for no furloughs through January of 2022. More than 1,700 pilots were expected to be furloughed at the end of this month. Instead, they'll be paid for 30 hours a month with medical and vacation benefits intact. The union says the deal will help Delta. I'm Dale Willman, NPR News. Now for regional weather. According to the National Weather Service, in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight will be mostly clear with a low around 34. Thanksgiving Day will be sunny with a high near 54 and an overnight low around 34 with mostly clear skies. In Sacramento tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 42. Thanksgiving Day will be sunny with a high near 62 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 35. Tonight in Truckee, skies will be partly cloudy with a low around 15. Thanksgiving Day will be sunny with a high near 35 and mostly clear skies overnight with a low around 13. And in Angels Camp tonight, skies will be mostly clear with a low around 36. And tomorrow, Thanksgiving Day, will be sunny with a high near 58 and a low around 36 with mostly clear skies. I'm speaking with Gary Zimmerman. And Gary, a lot has been going on in the economic world the last few weeks. I'd like to ask you about the Fed and former Fed leaders who are in the news and then move on to renewed efforts to support the economy in the months ahead as the COVID virus is again raging and risks are ravaging the economy and the recovery shows signs of 
slowing down. Hi, Paul. Thank you. And uh, let me wish everyone a, a happy and safe Thanksgiving uh, before we start. Yes, this has been quite a couple of weeks. So uh, I'll let you start with the first question there, Paul. Sure. Uh, Gary, the Fed and the Fed leadership has been in the news. Um, where shall I start? Maybe with Federal Reserve Chair uh, Powell strenuously objecting to the stra- Treasury Secretary taking away the Fed's pandemic lending tools. Is this the time to limit their ability to respond to a financial crisis? Paul, excellent question. Uh, Fed Chair Powell has made it very clear the Fed believes it needs these lending programs and the roughly $450 billion in funds that go with them in the event of a serious threat to the financial system and the economy. Um, These uh, programs were set to could be continued up through 2026, so ending them now um, is certainly a good question. Um, I think Powell is absolutely correct. You know, these funds and loans could be critical as the pandemic surges and the risks that are being caused by that, as well as the fact that we are ending the 2020 programs, the CARES programs were put in place to support the economy um, earlier in the year and that have been a big part of the recovery so far. And I think we'll probably come back more about that later. But so as those programs end, it will cause bankruptcies, evictions, mortgage defaults, business failures, bad loans, just troubles throughout the economy that that, um, you know, could lead to serious problems. So as the economy is already slowing down, you know, we still have, you know, over 10 million payroll workers who are unemployed. So, you know, I think in, in that framework, one should remember how important those lending programs were uh, or Fed lending programs were um, in the 2008 financial crisis rescue. Um, yeah. So the Fed uh, being able to lend large amounts of money is an important tool, I guess, in the financial panic or crisis. Uh, so former Fed chair Janet Yellen uh, you worked with her at the San Francisco Fed, and she's expected to be appointed to the new, to be the new Treasury Secretary. Would you expect her to side with Fed Chair Powell or the outgoing Treasury Secretary? Well, Janet Yellen was part of the Fed leadership team during the 2008 financial crisis and recovery. She's a terrific economist uh, with a huge amount of experience. She knows the financial system, expert in labor markets and the economy. Um, And I think she clearly knows how important the lending programs were to saving the financial system and the economy in 2008, 2009, when the Fed lent out of its own portfolio about uh, even more than $1.5 trillion to help save the financial system. And that is an important, critical role of central banks like like the Federal Reserve. So I think it's really obvious that she will support Powell in this case. Unfortunately, there are also reports out now and last couple of days I've seen that the that the current administration seems to be trying to make it even more difficult or impossible for Yellen as the new Treasury Secretary to be able to to allow the Fed to keep that 450 billion in emergency lending funds available in the event of a, a meltdown or financial market problems. Um, you know, so that's that's troublesome that you would actually go to the efforts to kill the program at a time when it looks like, you know, maybe maybe we might need it uh, in the near future. Well, Gary, Fed leadership was in the news this week as well. The Senate voted not to confirm Trump advisor Judy Shelton to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Um, what's that all about? What happened? 
Paul, it's an interesting situation. Um, Judy Shelton has espoused a number of you know, policy issues that are sort of way out of the mainstream. For example, she has supported a return to the gold standard. President Nixon took the U.S. economy off the gold standard in the early 1970s because it wasn't working. Um, you know, that's uh, you know takes away central banks' ability to make monetary policy based on conditions in their domestic economy. So that's a you know essentially wouldn't you know take away the Fed's ability to to help support the economy in times of need. Um, she has also uh, not been supporting uh, maintaining the Fed's independence from the administration. So you know, this would essentially she would allow the administration to control the Federal Reserve in terms of making monetary policy and setting interest rates. You know, the, we, we've seen the president, for example, um, on numerous occasions over the last several years, basically calling for the Fed to make political monetary policy decisions or interest rate decisions. Um, so based on that kind of information, she received uh, several unqualified or no votes from Republicans as well as um, no votes from the Democrats. And um, she lost lost the vote um this may come back for another vote um, it was close uh but you know at the moment you know she's out well gary there's also been quite a bit of news about uh, uh, both the expiration of the federal gov- of these federal government programs like cares that were implemented to provide economic reef- relief from the pandemic how important is renewing these programs now as the surge in COVID-19 cases is at record levels and is likely uh, to start showing up as a deteriorating uh, factor in economic conditions? What do things look like? Well, Paul, good question. Uh, answering it might take hours, but um, yeah, let me, let me just start by noting that both Fed Chair Powell and um, Treasury, likely Treasury Secretary-designate Janet Yellen um, have been strong supporters of renewing these programs that have been um, negotiated in Congress and with the administration but haven't gone anywhere. And if nothing happens, which is kind of the way it looks right now, politically, um, large parts of these programs will um, (laughs) be shut down, basically, um, at the end of December. Um, so, you know, these these programs, CARES programs that you mentioned, were important uh, to counteract the serious negative economic impacts of COVID-19 earlier in the year and in the efforts to you know, slow down the pandemic. You know, all, all of these things had, you know, serious negative effects on the national economy. Um, and if they're not going to be replaced, um, you know, at the same time we're seeing COVID surge through the nation again, it... it had some major risks. What one program has already expired. That was the $600 weekly unemployment insurance payment that expired in July. You know that means you know many of the 10 plus million unemployed workers um, have lost a significant source of income. You know, and that means less support for consumer spending in the overall economy. So families paying using that those funds to pay rent, mortgages, car loans, eat, clothes, etc. Um, another program, the pandemic <laughs> relief program that provides unemployment insurance payments to freelance and gig workers, that expires at the end of December and means that about over 7 million workers uh, who have been receiving benefits under that program will, will lose those. Um, there's also the pandemic emergency unemployment um, 
supplemental program that adds 13 additional weeks of benefits beyond the usual 26 weeks of unemployment insurance, that also goes away at the end of December. Um, you know, so these are, you know, very large amounts of spending that will, you know, not be taking place if um, these benefits are not being paid to the billions of unemployed workers. And, you know, remember, we're still looking at over 10 million payroll of employment workers um, who, are, who are out of a job. Um, so, you know, at the same time, we've got you know, efforts to take away the Fed lending tools as well. Uh, you know, so all, all of these reduce support for consumer spending, which, you know, which adds to job losses going forward, uh, which leads to more reductions in consumer spending, more sales, uh, falling sales, uh, more layoffs. And you just get a, a downward economic spiral. Um, so I think it's really important that we, you know, this is a time to fight the current surge with calls for increasing spending to, to support increasing government sp spending to programs to support consumer spending. You know, and that's, you know, you can do that with unemployment insurance extensions, um, checks to families like the earlier this year that helped prop up spending and keep businesses open and, and workers working, um, you know, and support for businesses in general and in industries that are especially hard hit. Um, and th this, I think, is especially important as we come into a period with, you know, COVID surging, surging, and the economy slowing. So that's that's my take on it. So it is pretty important to, in in your opinion and Chairman Powell's Absolutely. opinion, to get the economy back on track to be out of control COVID nineteen. Yes, yes, and if you, if you don't control COVID nineteen, uh, then the the damage to the economy gets worse and worse. So, Gary, thanks a lot for speaking with us. Lots of information, and uh, we'll we'll keep in touch and talk again in a couple of weeks. Okay, thank you, Paul. Gary Zimmerman is a retired senior economist for the Federal Reserve in San Francisco and currently is a visiting professor at the Vienna University of Economics and Business in Austria, where he teaches courses in economics and finance. There are now three promising COVID-19 vaccines on the horizon, and the first Americans to receive one could get it as soon as mid-December. So now the case is being made for people to get comfortable taking them. Ernest Grant is one of the top-ranking nurses in the country. He leads the American Nurses Association. He's also participating in one of the vaccine trials. He says it's important that people of color participate in trials to improve accuracy and to build trust. I think there's a well-documented history of blacks being used in experiments. So even today, there's still you know, hesitancy to participate. You know, and usually it is based on those prior experiences. Grant believes the history of distrust has to be acknowledged and reshaped. And for him, that has to begin with those on the front lines. First of all, nurses need to educate themselves so that they have the most accurate and up-to-date information being able to just you know sit down and answer questions or concerns that uh, members of the uh, the public may have 
And I think also having uh, people in authoritative positions, such as maybe uh, a pastor or black doctors and nurses, uh, actually seeing them take the injection. Those are some of the ways that we can help to convince communities of color that you know they really need to uh, not have a fear of these vaccines. I mean, is it possible for experimental vaccines to to have different effects depending on race or ethnicity, or or is that is that just a, a myth? No, it, it is possible, and that's one of the reasons why, with the clinical trials, that there is a need to seek out a variety of volunteers because everybody's body is different, and as they you know, began to participate in the trials, we're able to pick up on those little things and and know that, you know, okay, so what are some of the common side effects or are there side effects that we may see in one particular uh, ethnicity over another? And that's why it's so important that we get a whole rainbow of colors of people, if you will, to participate in these trials so that uh, we can say that we know for certain in communities of color that these vaccines are just as effective as they are in the the white population. Hmm. It it feels really important to underscore this. I mean, one reason you have decided to take part in in a trial yourself is, as I think you said, to be a role model and to show Mm -hmm. that that it is safe and okay if if you are a person of color to to do this. But Mm -hmm. in addition, I mean, you're saying there's a real risk if you don't have a diverse enough population in these clinical trials, I mean, the the results could be misleading and and you might not catch some potential risks. Absolutely. And it could also further some of the misconceptions that people may have. Oh, well, they only tried it on white people. So, uh, well, you don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but uh, that could certainly be that. And again, just trying to educate the public that there are guidelines, there's ethical standards, there's a review board, we have to trust science. We've seen some companies obviously moving along in the process, and, and there's been you know some reason for optimism. Uh, from what you've seen so far, are you confident that there's a diverse enough population being tested that, that you'll have faith in results? Certainly. I, I think between both the Pfizer and the uh, Moderna, the numbers that I'm hearing of people of color that they had in their clinical trials, yes, I, I think that is enough to, uh, to go forward and uh, begin to administer the, uh, the vaccine. Obviously, we got news of AstraZeneca. I know their clinical trial is still open, and they're still looking for uh, particularly people of color to uh, participate. But uh, yes, based on the numbers of Pfizer and Moderna, I believe that there is uh, enough Black and uh, people of color participation that we can move forward and say that this is safe. So what's the experience been like for you being part of, of one of these early trials? Well, you know, I was thinking about it a couple of days before I got asked to participate. I saw that as a sign of, uh, okay, <laughs> you know, go ahead and, uh, and, and do it. Uh, it's, it's been fine. I just had literally just a, uh, about a day of just extreme fatigue and uh, chills, and that's been it. I was able to still work during that time and continue to uh, feel great. I mean, you can't know for sure, but do you... The fact that you felt something, does that suggest that you actually got one of the vaccines and, and not a placebo, or, or at least a, have you convinced yourself of that? <laughs> well, from what I'm hearing, yes. Uh, a placebo usually does not give you fatigue and uh, chills. Hearing from other people who have talked about their experiences, mine has been sort of the same. I am still in the study. Uh, I will be followed for two years, and at the end of the study is when it gets unblinded, but uh 
I probably did get the the vaccine and not the placebo. But I'm just putting all of this together and thinking this through. I mean, if this is a two-year process, that means, you know, once there are vaccines widely available, you can't go get one because that might mess up the study. I mean, let's just say, mm-hmm. in theory, you got the placebo and that these symptoms were coming from something else. I mean, there's there's like a, there's a risk there, right? That you could be unvaccinated for, for a while. Yes, there is a potential risk, but uh, I still maintain contact with my clinical trials unit. I do keep a, a diary and I also have a, a number to call the clinical trial unit if I'm experiencing anything that resembles the signs and symptoms of COVID and will be brought in and you know examined and the next steps from there. So mm-hmm. I suppose, yes, you are right that there is that possibility, but uh, you know, so far, knock on wood, uh, that has not happened. Why is it worth the risk to you? Well, it's worth the, the risk because you know we're in the middle of a pandemic. And at this rate, particularly knowing that this virus has a propensity to really proliferate through the black and brown community, I wanted to be able to do my part to contribute to that body of science that would uh, help to alleviate or at the very least uh, knock down this virus or the, the virus spread. So that's why it is so important because obviously I care about mankind and anything we can do to put this virus to rest, I'm willing to do my part. Ernest Grant uh, leads the American Nurses Association. He's also taking part in one of the vaccine trials. Uh, Thank you so much for your time and uh, thanks for all the work you and other nurses have been doing for all of us in our country. Thank you. Budget experts predict California will face multi-billion dollar deficits in 2022 and beyond as a result of the pandemic, and groups are calling on policymakers to protect higher education. Places like community colleges will be key to getting people trained and back to work, but only if they can stay in business. A new report from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and Lumina Foundation cautions against indiscriminate funding cuts. Gabriela Gomez with the Gates Foundation says a budget should not be a blunt instrument. These cuts where you slash and burn across the board just don't work. And actually what ends up happening is there's tremendous rollback. The report calls for a student's first approach and functions as a guide for policymakers to support lower income students of color and adult learners who are retraining after losing their jobs. That means protecting financial aid and prioritizing the community college systems that serve vulnerable populations. During the Great Recession, California cut $1.5 billion from higher education. Schools had to reduce classes and raise tuition, and as a result, enrollment is still down more than a decade later. Gomez says this time states can do better. Let's not repeat the mistakes of the past. Let's actually take what we know from the past and apply it in this context right now. The report also suggests colleges and universities dedicate staffers to helping students finish their degrees and promote short-term credentials in job fields that are currently in demand. Support for this reporting was provided by Lumina Foundation. For Public News Service, I'm Suzanne Potter. America certainly has an abundance of food, even though many Americans do not. Yet, we face a momentous choice of whether to pursue a food future rooted in the ethic of sustainable agriculture or one based on the exploitative ethic of agri-industry. What better symbol of agri-industry's vision of food than that ubiquitous Thanksgiving bird, the butterball turkey? The butterball has been hoisted onto our tables by huge advertising budgets and regular promotion payments to supermarkets. 
The birds themselves have been grotesquely deformed by industrial geneticists, who created breasts so ponderous that the turkeys can't walk, stand up, or even reproduce on their own, thus earning the nickname dead-end birds. Adding torture to this intentional deformity, the industry sentences these once-majestic fowl to dismal lives in tiny confinement cages inside the sprawling steel and concrete animal factories that scar America's rural landscape, monuments to greed-based corporate husbandry. As the eminent farmer-poet-activist Wendell Berry tells us, eating is a profound political act. It lets you and me vote for the butterball industrial model or choose to go back to the future of agriculture, which is the art and science of cooperating with rather than trying to overwhelm nature. That cooperative ethic is the choice of the remarkable good food uprising that has spread across the country in the past 30 years. Now, the fastest growing segment of the food economy, it is creating the alternative model of a local, sustainable, small-scale, community-based, organic, humane, healthy, democratic, and tasty food system for all. This is Jim Hightower saying, to take part in the good food movement and find small-scale farmers, artisans, farmers markets, and other resources in your area, visit www.localharvest.org. Hightower's commentaries are brought to you by the Hightower Lowdown, the monthly newsletter with Hightower's take on what Wall Street and Washington are up to. For information, visit HightowerLowdown.org. That's our newscast for this evening. The KVMR Evening News airs Monday through Friday at 6 p.m. and is produced by Emory Audio Productions. If you've heard something on this newscast you'd like to hear again, you can go to kvmr.org where you can listen on demand. Coming up next, we bring you Sages Among Us and at 7, Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. For Emory Audio Productions, I'm Charlotte Peterson, wishing you a fabulous evening and a Thanksgiving day filled with gratitude and love. Be well and be safe.